Have you ever wanted a do-over? Remember in like grade school kickball or something, you know, you get up to bat and the pitcher rolls the ball and you get up there and you just totally miss it. You know, you just shank it behind you or something. And Wait a minute, a do-over, you know, I want a do-over. Let's just start that over again. Or maybe you said something and it just comes out, you know, it slips out of your mouth. You think, oh man, I wish I could get a do-over on that. Or maybe you had a really tough day. I wish I could get a do-over. I think I could do that day better. Or maybe you made a huge mistake in your life that affects years upon years upon years or even the rest of your life. And you think, I wish I could get a do-over on that. And yes, our mistakes and, and the things we learn from it build our character. But sometimes, don't you wish you could go back and do it over and learn those things a different way? Not have to go through that hardship? Open up to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Our sermon today is called Christ, Our New Beginning. And yes, we'll go to 1 Corinthians 15 in a bit, but I want to start in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, as you may know, records the days of creation. In six days, God created everything that there is. And each day sort of builds and builds and builds and builds. And even in the language, and it's a very poetic language here, there's this theme of just building and building and building up until the sixth day when humanity is created. And it's sort of this grand crescendo in the music of creation that God places Adam and Eve in this world for His purpose. And then on the seventh day, He rests. There's this beautiful picture in the pattern of creation of God building everything, shaping everything to operate according to his purposes, putting us into that picture in a very special role, as we'll look at in a moment, and then resting. And that doesn't mean, oh, I'm done working. I don't need to do anything. It means everything is operating the way it should, and I am now the Lord and God over all of it. That's what it means for God to rest. The world, the universe, all of creation, humanity was operating exactly the way he wanted it. And there's this theme in scripture that that rest and us living in that rest of God was to go on and on and on forever and ever. And it gets picked up again in the book of Revelation as we looked at in our Revelation series. But look at Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Because as I said, there's this crescendo that builds, in, and if you don't know musical terms, that, that just means getting louder and louder and louder, building excitement, making a point, making a statement, drawing attention to. So there's this crescendo within creation. And it's, we'll pick up the story in verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Now think about this for a second. The earth belongs to God. All the animals belong to God. Adam and Eve belong to God. The stars in the sky, everything that was created belongs to God. It is part of His kingdom. He rules over all of it as the perfect high king. And then He creates Adam and Eve and He says, now you rule over the earth. Ever thought about that? 
It's God's kingdom, and yet Adam and Eve are told to rule over or reign over the earth. You see, this was God's purpose in creation. Everything is part of God's kingdom. And then within God's kingdom, he gave Adam and Eve a kingdom to operate under his authority, for his glory, for his perfect, or for his purposes, and in his perfect blessing. And what did Adam and Eve do? Here they were with, with the most wonderful situation, operating under God's sovereign authority and blessing, having all this authority and freedom in the world, this incredible, prestigious place in creation. And Adam and Eve basically said, not enough. Because God had told them, there is an aspect of creation that is not yours to take. We know it as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God came to them and said, you do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And maybe you grew up in, in Sunday school and you heard the Sunday school stories of God said there's one fruit you shouldn't eat and they ate that fruit and they broke a rule. And because they broke a rule, all sin, all sin entered the world. That's okay, but that's just a small part of the story. It wasn't just a rule that they broke. It was the authority of God that they rebelled against. God said to know, which means to determine good and evil, is my job, God's job. He said, Adam and Eve, all this freedom, all this authority, all this ruling over the earth is yours. It is yours to have. It is yours to use for my glory. But to determine good and evil is my job. You are not to do it. And Scripture says that Eve looked at that fruit. And she said, I want that. What I have is not enough. And she took some and she gave it to her husband who was right there. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. And you know, we typically think of that phrase, eyes being opened, as a good thing. Well, I didn't know something and now I do know and that's wonderful. I think in this sense, it is a very awful thing. Because that which God was overseeing as His rule, that which was His role alone to take, they are now bearing the burden of. And God never intended them to bear that burden. The right and the ability to determine right and wrong is not for us. And I believe the history of the world from that moment to today and into the future when Christ returns is a testimony for how bad we are at determining right from wrong. Would you agree? I can even look at my own life and say, you know, when I do things apart from God's will, apart from His authority, and I say, this is what I want to do, bad things happen. So now the weight of that was on them. And instead of this kingdom of glory that they had been given under his sovereign authority, now it's a kingdom of rebellion. It's a kingdom of pain and suffering and a kingdom of death. So let me ask you again. Have you ever wanted a do-over? Because I think in that moment, I wonder if Adam and Eve would have wanted a do-over. And I believe that ever since then, the history of humanity is a testimony to the fact that we are seeking a do-over. We are grabbing at anything we can try to grab onto to say, I'm going to fix this. 
I'm going to make this right. Now turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We are far along in our 1 Corinthians series that we call Saturate. And it's this idea that our lives and our lives together as the church are to be saturated with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The truth of his death, burial, and resurrection is the only way of salvation. When we are squeezed by the stress and the pressure of this world, what the world should see, what we should see, is the gospel. I am holding on to Jesus Christ. And we talked about that last week, this idea of holding on in the first part of chapter 15 and, and a little bit after our passage about this truth that we and this life that we see is not all that there is. We will have a resurrection. Life eternal will be given to those who are saved by Jesus Christ. And that gives us a perspective on the world. But I skipped over verses 20 through 28 because I wanted to spend today talking about these very important verses. Because while the rest of the passage is really about our resurrection tied into Christ's, This central part is all about Christ's resurrection. And it is so important. So read, follow along with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 through 28. I'm going to read it for us. You can follow along in your Bible. The words may be a little different depending on the version I'm reading out of the NIV. Starting in verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death for he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all and in all. I want to walk through this passage. There's a lot going on here. And it is some powerful, powerful truth for us and how we live our lives and how we look at the situation of our lives and the world around us. So let's start in verse 20, where we're introduced to this idea of Christ as a new beginning. And the the passage uses the term of first fruits. I want to talk about two different aspects of first fruits. One is strictly agricultural, because that's where this comes from the agricultural meaning of first fruits, and then I want to talk about the spiritual meaning of first fruits, and they have a lot of overlap. But I think if we look at them separately, we can really understand why Paul is using this term. Now, I'm not a farmer. I can't even call myself a gardener. I, I kill plants uh, just as soon as I can plant them. So I don't know much about this. But I can read about farmers, okay? The first fruits in this culture... And, and all the way back in the Old Testament, you know, every year has different uh, rainfall, different sunlight, different growing conditions. And you don't know as a farmer until the end of the season whether the conditions were perfect or not so perfect, whether the soil was good or not, really until whatever you planted, let's say wheat, until it 
grows and produces, you don't know if it's going to be a good harvest or bad. But one indicator is that when it was time for the, the wheat to, what do you call wheat when it comes, it doesn't blossom. What, see, I'm not a farmer. What is it? Germinate? Germinates. Okay. Ripen? Good. I'll use ripen. I can say that much easier. <laughs> I know scripture. Farming? Eh. When it's time for the, the wheat to ripen, it's not like one day the farmer gets up and boom, all, it's all ripe at once, right? That would be nice, maybe. But for the farmer, it comes in stages. Some of the plants ripen a little bit before the rest. And so when they begin to ripen, the farmer can go out, look at the plant and say, there's a lot of, of the what, kernels of wheat. Is that fair? Thank you. You're all going to go home and just laugh and laugh at me. There's a lot, and, and they're, they're big. It's, it's a good growing season. The conditions must have been good, and they go around and they check another piece of wheat, and they say, this is good. It's a good season. It's good. And so he says, I know the rest of the produce is going to be good. I know the rest of the harvest is going to be good. It was a good year. The first fruits are an indicator of the harvest that is to come. So now Paul says Christ is our first fruits. How did Christ rise from the dead? Did he come out of the tomb like, oh, mm, oh, kind of stiff and a little sluggish? Did he come out and say, oh man, back here again? I thought I just left you guys. Was that his resurrection? No, he came out in power. He came out pain-free. He came out with eternal life. Death had no hold on him again. So when we look at Christ's resurrection, we say that's an indicator of what God has in store for me. But that's just one part. You see, this idea of first fruits in the Old Testament took on another meaning. When the harvest was coming up, and, and the farmer would go out and gather in the first fruits as they were coming together. This was an indicator of the harvest that was to come. The law said that the farmer was to take that first fruit gathering and bring it and offer it as a sacrifice to the Lord. We use this sometimes as a, an idea of tithing. We should bring part of our income and bring it to the Lord, and that was kind of how they tithe. That's part of it, but I think it misses a greater point. It wasn't that they had this amount and they were to take a small portion, yes, the best and the first, and give it to God. What the first fruit offering meant to them, and catch this, this is really important, is that all of the harvest belongs to God. The giving of the first fruits was an indicator and a statement of faith. I give you this portion, Father, because I believe the rest of it is yours too. Do you see the difference? We get in this, this mentality of, well, I'll give a little bit, but the rest is mine. It's just the opposite in Scripture. I give a little bit as a reminder to me that it all belongs to God anyway. Now think about this. Paul calls Christ the firstfruits of the resurrection. And he says, when Christ was raised, he was raised perfect, completely righteous, he was raised in eternal life. He was raised in a perfect relationship with God. He had borne the sin of our, or the punishment of our sins on his shoulders on the cross and paid for it. 
But that's gone now. And he's in a perfect relationship with God. And because Christ has risen from the dead, it is an indicator, a statement to the world that all those who are in Christ will also be born again to a perfect and eternal relationship with God. The rest of the harvest, you and I, who are saved by Jesus Christ, belong to God as well. In Adam, we are born into a kingdom of death. We are born into this rebellious kingdom. But Christ came in, died in our place, raised from the dead, and has proclaimed a new kingdom under God's authority. And through salvation, we enter into that kingdom. He is our new beginning. Because through the resurrection, first His and eventually ours, we are gathered into a new kingdom with Christ as our perfect King. Which brings us to our second point. Christ is our new King. I want to tell you a, a tale of two kingdoms. Look at verse 21 there. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. Such a simple statement. But there's some powerful truth behind here. You see, God created Adam and Eve to rule over this kingdom of this earth that he had given them. And yet they rebelled. And when they rebelled, they took the kingdom with them. We live in that kingdom today. People say, why is the world so messed up? Why do so many bad things happen? That's why. People say, well, it's God's fault. That's not God's fault. That's our fault. That's what happened when we rebelled against God. Our kingdom that we were given was to operate under His authority and for His glory. And we said, thank you, God, but no thank you. We've got this. Leave us alone. And we wonder why everything has gone sideways since. Adam was to be the ruler over this kingdom. And everyone born into Adam's family was to be a ruler over this kingdom. But the kingdom has gone astray. And so Christ came as a new king. The resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. God had ordained for this world to be governed and ruled over by us, humanity. So a human had to come to be the perfect king. Christ is both God and man. It's one of those truths that you can think about all the time and say, I don't really understand why. And then you come across a verse like this, you go, that's why. He had to be a man because a man was supposed to rule. It was human's place. Christ is the perfect king. Christ did what we could not. He was the perfect king who reigned. Verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made what? Alive. Now that's not saying that Christ is just going to restore everybody to perfect life. That would be wonderful. But that's not the truth. God can't just take this rebellious kingdom, bring it back under his authority and say, well, all that bad stuff, I'm just going to forget about it and and ignore it. That's not the way it works. Because later on in the passage, it says, each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, what? Those who belong to him. That's the resurrection that it's talking about. That's the new kingdom. This kingdom has already begun. That's an interesting thing about the first fruits. You know, as Christians, we often think about maybe someday, hopefully, somewhere in the distant future, we will experience resurrection. Someday, maybe, hopefully, in the distant future, Christ's kingdom will come. 
But do you know what is true if the first fruits of the harvest have been gathered? What is true of that harvest? Has it begun or is it yet to come? It's already begun. Friends, as Christians, we don't believe in something that is far off in the future. We believe in something that is here and now. The harvest has already begun. The fact that Christ has risen from the dead has begun the harvest. So we are trusting in something that's already been accomplished and already is going on right now. It is absolutely certain. Our part of it is in the future. But God's already doing it right here and right now. And then look at the beginning of verse 24. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. At the beginning there, it says, then the end will come when he hands over all the kingdom, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father. Remember back in Genesis, what I talked about was the purpose of our creation. Our kingdom, our ruling was to happen underneath God's authority for his glory, according to his blessing and his purposes. Christ has restored that purpose for us. That's what his death, burial, and resurrection has accomplished. But entering a rebel kingdom and bringing it back is no easy task. Christ didn't just come in and shake hands and say, hey, vote for me for king of the year. He didn't come in and just say, oh, I just love you. It doesn't matter what you've done. We'll just ignore all that. It's fine. Something had to be conquered. When a rebel kingdom is brought back into the kingdom to which it belongs, it must be conquered. And the rebellious aspects of it must be removed. So how did he do that? Well, we come to Christ the conqueror. Look at the end of verse 24. After he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. When I read verses like that, I, I, I picture an army coming in. I picture like Jesus with all the angels just marching into the world and saying, this is mine now, and if you don't like it, get out. And they're conquering left and right, and they're storming the cities and tearing down the walls. Is that how Christ came and conquered? It's not. It's not at all how Christ conquered. Oh, he has to defeat his enemies. Death must be destroyed. But death was not destroyed through an army. Death was destroyed through a cross and an empty tomb. Christ entered our kingdom as a conqueror to overthrow the rebel powers of this world, including our own sin. And he did so by taking our sin upon himself on the cross and dying for it and raising from the dead, promising eternal life to all who believes. And he is now reigning in the place that was Adam's and the place that is ours, but we messed up. He now reigns and he's restoring this kingdom by conquering all the powers that are against him. And he does that by saving people, by the message of the gospel going out and saying, you don't have to be a part of this kingdom of death anymore. You can be brought from that kingdom into the kingdom of Jesus Christ the kingdom of salvation and eternal life. He has restored the point of creation, which brings us to the last point. Look at verses 27 through 28. 
For he has put everything under his feet. Now, what it, when it says everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not mean God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. What in the world is it talking about? I believe we have to go back to the garden. What was the part? What was the problem in the garden? God made everything and put humanity in charge of it. He gave them this wonderful, perfect position for His glory and their blessing. And what did they do with it? They said, not good enough. They usurped or tried to overthrow His authority by saying, we want to run our kingdom our way. So now in Scripture, we have this powerful testimony of Christ our King the conquering king, the redeeming king, the king of our savior or our salvation. And yet in this passage, Paul's making a very important point. Christ is not doing what Adam did. Christ did not enter to this kingdom, save us, conquer all the authorities and all the powers, and then say, thanks God, I've got this. I think I'm just going to keep this for myself. I'm just going to do my own thing. That's what Adam did. Christ came back to the Father. And one day, He's going to say, I saved all this for you, Father. All these people are saved for your glory. I do not claim them as my own. They are yours. You created them. You made this world operate according to your principles. And I offer it back to you. He is not trying to usurp God's authority. Now, this is a little difficult. Because when we're talking about Christ, we're talking about somebody very different than Adam. Christ eternally exists as equal with God. So to say that Christ could try to rebel against God's authority would be like saying Christ is rebelling against his own authority, which kind of makes you scratch your head and go, I don't get it. But Paul's making a very important point by comparing Adam and Christ and showing the difference. And in this place, I really think when he talks about Christ, he is talking about Christ accomplishing the things that are ours to rule over this kingdom the way God intended humanity to do it. He is our new beginning. In Christ, we are restored to what we were meant to be. Let me just go over a couple of scriptures because this passage here is very prone to misinterpretation. Some people believe that this means that Christ has always been less than God, that He is somehow a lesser created being. And this is one passage of a few others that they use to point to that. But I think it's important at this juncture to put that to rest. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, I'll just read these for us. It says, of the greatness of His government, this is a messianic prophecy, talking about Jesus the Messiah that would come one day. Of the greatness of His government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over His kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Daniel 7.14, His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This passage makes it look like Christ is going to cease to reign at some point. I think he's going to cease to reign in a certain aspect. But as far as having lordly dominion over all of creation, that will never stop. The New Testament picks this up. Hebrews 1.8 says, But about the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. And then Revelation 11.15, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Messiah, and He will reign forever 
and ever. God had a purpose for this kingdom to be ruled by humanity. So Christ became human and restored what we could not. And I believe that it's that aspect of his reigning, his reigning in the place that was supposed to be ours, that he's going to give up. Because Revelation chapter 5 says this about those who are saved in Christ, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Christ will continue to reign. He will continue to reign in his place as God. But what he has done is accomplished the do-over for us to be restored to that right relationship with God so that we can reign in our perfect place in a place of trusting God's authority, of overseeing all the aspects of creation, the book of Revelation is filled with the imagery of this that is so beautiful. And we're going to sing about it here in a moment. So what do we take away from this? Christ is the new beginning. And I know you might be sitting here today and and you might have things on your hearts and minds and just say, man, this... Okay, this is great, powerful, deep theology. That's wonderful, but that doesn't help me with right now. But it does. Because if Christ can conquer sin and death, if Christ can restore the very purpose of God for your life and give you eternal life, do you not think he is more powerful than that situation you are in right now? We need to know the big picture of God. We need to know the big picture of Jesus Christ because it puts those difficult moments in perspective. So we can say, Jesus, I don't know what you're doing right now. I don't get it. I don't see it. I may not even agree with it, but I know who you are and I know what you're doing from eternity past to eternity future and I will trust you and just keep following because your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. You don't have to live for a defeated kingdom. A lot of us spend most of our time living in this defeated kingdom. We set our priorities by a kingdom that's already defeated, that Christ has already declared victory over. We set our calendars, we set our checkbooks and our banking account by things that have already been defeated. We are called in Christ to live for the new kingdom the restored kingdom, the new beginning, the kingdom accomplished through Christ's conquering power of the cross and the resurrection with Christ as our perfect king who loves us and saves us and who has restored us to who we were intended to be in the first place. This is what it means to be saturated with the gospel, to live holding on to that powerful, powerful truth that nothing in this world can take away from us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I love that the gospel is so simple that a child can understand it. The punishment for our sin was put on your son and he paid the price. That he rose from the dead and promises eternal life to all who believe. It's so simple. It's so beautiful. 
And yet it's so profound at the same time. And we can keep digging and digging and digging and start to see these themes in creation, in the Old Testament, in the ministry of Jesus, in the creation of the church, and in the end times, and even in our lives right now, and we see, wow, it is all according to your purpose and your plan. And so we trust in you, Father, our great and almighty God. And we trust in you, Jesus, our powerful, conquering King and Savior, because you rose from the dead. And I pray if there's anyone here right now who has not trusted you as their Savior, may now be the moment. May they just say, Jesus, I've been living in the wrong kingdom for far too long. Save me. Thank you for the cross. I'm a sinner in need of salvation and you have given it all for me. And then, Father, may they walk in the newness of life of the new kingdom. Your perfect kingdom. And for those who have accepted Christ maybe recently or a long time ago in their life, may we be reminded we are children of a greater king. Father, may we not fret over the things of this world. May we not fret over the politics and the headlines and all the craziness that comes up. For you are king over all of it and you have conquered it. And so we will trust in you. In your name we pray. Amen.